For Thursday, May 7th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, the coronavirus could set back years of progress when it comes to fighting hunger and poverty around the world. We really are faced with the, um, with the potential that we could go dramatically backwards on some of those gains and see more people fall into poverty and more people face hunger. Michelle Nunn, president and CEO of Care USA, joins me for a look at what her organization is doing to stop that and how they're turning their attention on the U.S., for the first time. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Care packages, those boxes of snacks and other treats you might have sent a friend or a family member, actually got their start some 75 years ago. It was then that 22 American organizations came together to form the group CARE to rush much-needed food to survivors of World War II. For decades, CARE has focused its humanitarian and development work abroad. But now, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the group is turning its attention to the U.S., including offering CARE packages to frontline workers. Michelle Nunn is president and CEO of CARE, and she joins me now for more. Michelle, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's a it's great privilege to be able to to be with you. So walk me through a bit of the history of the care package. This this was actually something that got started back after World War II, correct? Yes, the care package was actually invented, created, and deployed by a handful of Americans who, after World War II, saw that people were facing hunger, uh, refugees in uh, post-World War II Europe, and they said, we're going to do something about this. We're not going to sit on the sidelines. And so they came up with the idea of care packages. And within a few months, they had managed to send the first shipment of 20,000 care packages from Philadelphia to the Havre, France. And that was the beginning of what became, over several decades, the delivery of hundreds of millions of care packages uh, around the world. This is a effort that has changed over time. Describe that kind of process of change and, and maybe some of the, the ways that this care package effort has, has evolved over the years. 
Yeah, well, over time, care moved from not only emergency assistance, which we still do, but also to long-term development. So we do both now. When there is an emergency, we respond, we provide cash assistance, and we provide, in some sense and some instances, food provisions. But we also do that long-term work. So we're there before, during, and after crises. And from that legacy of the care package, we now work in 100 countries. And uh, and we reach over 70 million people each year. You have made the announcement that your organization is going to start sending care packages uh, domestically to people here in the country. Walk me through the story of, of how this idea came up and, and how this decision was made. Yeah, well, over the last year, we have been thinking about our 75th anniversary. And and if you look at poverty, it's been cut almost in half in terms of extreme poverty around the world. But at the same time, uh, poverty rates in the U.S. have been stubbornly persistent. And we have um, real poverty and, um, and real extraordinary need here in our own country. And so we've been thinking about how do we apply the lessons that we've learned in 75 years of our work and how do we bring some of that home? America has been enormously generous, but we want to fight poverty everywhere. And we see it now around us, and we see it now in particular as it relates to our capacity to respond to this emergency of COVID-19. And so we think that uh, there is no better time than a time of challenge to reintroduce this care package idea in which we are bringing care and also um, material supplies that are needed uh, at a time when Americans, um, I think, are, are both needing and wanting uh, to stand in solidarity with one another. So this was an idea that was in the works before the pandemic hit. Our idea of bringing programming to the United States was in the works, but the idea of the actual care package is new, and, um, and but it seems particularly relevant to this moment when people can deliver food to those who are homebound, seniors and low-income people, and, uh, and make a world of difference, or when we can send, for instance, a cash care package to a caregiver, perhaps a low-income caregiver who's putting their life on the line in order to support and care for others others. Every organization has a fixed amount of resources, um, especially when you're relying, as I imagine CARE does, heavily on philanthropic giving. So there's a tension there, I would imagine, between who who do you help and, and who needs that help the most? Is it people here at home? Is, is it people abroad? Walk me kind of through how you navigate that. I think if you um, consider that less than 10% of philanthropic dollars go to international giving, the the 90% plus goes to domestic giving, the ability to tap into people's interest in helping their own neighbors and also use that as an opportunity to talk about um, the capacity to help their global neighbors as well. This pandemic brings home our interdependence, and truly, you can see that uh, even if we eradicate COVID-19 in our own uh, communities, if it's not eradicated everywhere, none of us are safe. No community is safe until all communities are safe. The ability of the United States to provide aid to Europe after World War II, I imagine was it was a great signal of American power. We had the resources to actually give to parts of the world that really needed it. You have things like care packages. You have things like the Marshall Plan, which dumped 
tons of money into post-war Europe to fund recovery efforts. Now, CARE is turning some of that attention to our own country. Reflect on that for me, if, if you can. It seems to really indicate that maybe we're not in the position that we maybe were 75 years ago to be only helping other people. We have to turn some of this aid on ourselves. I do think there's a lot to learn from the history of post-World War II Europe and the care package and the Marshall Plan. I think it shows America at its most farsighted and generous. And we've been well served by those investments, if you think about our relationships with Europe. I think that history tells us that when America not only looks inward, but also looks outward, that we uh, prosper and that we benefit and that the world benefits. And I do think that we face an important choice at this moment, and it's an inflection point for us. And while we must and should ensure the strength of our own country in order to be able to be generous in the world, we also cannot forsake the world and we can't forsake our leadership because we are better than that. And we are also going to be uh, more safe and, uh, and more prosperous if we participate in the world as a leader. We, we are talking the same week that a bunch of nonprofit organizations participated in a program called Giving Tuesday Now. Uh, people might know of Giving Tuesday as a holiday after Thanksgiving, encouraging people to donate to nonprofits. Um, but doing that now in the midst of a pandemic, I think, is maybe an indicator of where philanthropies see their financial pictures shaping up as more and more people have lost their jobs, as the whole uh, economy is really hurting right now. Talk to me a little bit about that, about what you foresee in this time when a lot of people are financially hurting. It's very concerning for nonprofits because just as they are being called to do more, they are of course, experiencing philanthropic downturns. And we worry about how deep those downturns will go based upon uh, the economy and an understandable decline as people face joblessness or lower incomes or pay cuts. And so um, it is, I think, very concerning. I think a lot of nonprofits fear that they'll face existential crisis. So just like restaurants, just like small businesses, um, nonprofits are facing a, a critical time and not just in the coming months, but over uh, the foreseeable future. And um, I think it's all the more important, and it's why Giving Tuesday and others remind people that uh, we need our nonprofits now more than ever. We are finding, and I think lots of nonprofits are finding, that people are digging deep and that people are extraordinarily generous. And I hope that we'll find that people will go the extra mile and continue to support and extend their support to nonprofits at a time of, of great and enormous need. It seems like a, like a hard paradox to break out of, though, this idea that people need potentially services, the work that y'all do even more while, while people's pocketbooks are crunched even more. I think it's a really difficult um, conundrum, and uh, and we're going to need um, government support, and I think we're going to need philanthropic support, and I think we're going to need a lot of creativity and innovation around that we collaborate and work together in order to meet the needs at the same time that we do things uh, probably with less and um, with even greater agility. How do you hope your organization is able to navigate this this time, and maybe what other what other work do you, do you hope to do? to help aid people through this very challenging time. 
Well, we've been focused, as you might imagine, in the uh, immediate emergency response. So we, in 63 countries, have some form of COVID response. In a lot of places, that's basic water and sanitation provision, hygiene kits. Uh, it's community education to make sure people really understand how can they prevent infection. And um, as we move forward, it's also going to be around food insecurity. People are now facing the choice of, do I work and eat? or do I risk getting this uh, virus? And so uh, we will be helping um, ensure that we can do everything we can to stave off hunger for families around the world, including here in the United States. Uh, we also are looking at what people are calling sort of the shadow impacts of this pandemic. So things like gender-based violence as more women are quarantined in their homes. And, uh, and so we really do need to be taking not only the short-term look and response, but also looking at what are the mid and long-term impacts here. And if you think about uh, the progress that we've made in fighting poverty uh, and food insecurity, we really are faced with the, um, with the potential that we could go dramatically backwards on some of those gains and see more people fall into poverty and more people face hunger. We're all focused on this, this virus, but what are the secondary and maybe tertiary effects of fighting this thing going to be? Well, I think that is extraordinarily important for us to think about, not only here in the United States, where we have invested trillions of dollars in supporting our society through this, but what about those low-income countries that simply don't have those resources? And where quarantine might not be something that they can continue over long periods of time without people facing um, the kinds of hunger and deprivation that is untenable. And so I do think that we need um, both our nonprofit leadership and our governmental leaders and our scientists to, to help us think about the, um, the phases of this so that we uh, do not have fatigue when in six or nine months we're looking at issues of, of great hunger and potential uh, famine in countries that might um, already be looking at issues of natural disaster, but on top of that is layered great economic downturn, perhaps a, um, a significant recession or even depression globally. And so I think we have to take the long-term vision here, and we have to also be thinking about, uh, again, a global response. It's not sufficient. It's uh, it's what we, where we need to start, certainly, is understanding our national context and responding to ensure the safety of our own citizens. But we really have to take an international uh, look at this, and we must have international cooperation to deal with the long-term impacts of this. You have to think realistically about what the what the, what the problems are. I mean, this is. I think someone might 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 hear you saying all that, Michelle, and be like, "Oh, that's that's lots of doom and gloom." <laughs> well, it is, and I do I do want to try and be hopeful and um, and also optimistic. And I think the way to do that is to remind people that everybody has um, an opportunity to help at this moment. Everybody can do their part, uh, and they can be a part of the public health solution in their own community. They can support and give uh, their time and. Uh, dollars to local and international organizations. They can lift up their voice. And so this is a moment where I think we we will, um, I hope, look back with a degree of pride around how we've uh, met the challenge from a generational perspective. And, uh, and so I think when you think about it that way, it is both an opportunity um, and a challenge. And the opportunity is also to take some of the things that we learn from this and to rebuild more equitably. Uh, we can take 
take some of the things that we're learning in this response and we can ensure that we are ready for another pandemic, that we build back a community health system that is uh, more supportive of more people and more equitably accessible. So I think there is a lot to look forward to as we think about how do we rebuild and how do we recover in a way that honors the lessons of this pandemic. Michelle Nunn is president and CEO of Care USA. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us with questions, comments, or controversy at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at S. Claude Whitehead. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.